Well, good morning again. Happy Fourth of July. I, uh, I would guess that uh, in a room like this, uh, many of us have some memorable Fourth uh, uh, of July celebrations as we think back uh, over life. Uh, some different gatherings, different family gatherings, different trips maybe that we've been on. Um, and I was thinking this week uh, of a couple uh, that, that I have. Um, I remember one year my family was in Michigan uh, for the 4th, and we were all uh, in my van heading home from the fireworks, and it was so hot outside. It was, and you got to know about me, I don't like it hot. Winter is my favorite season. I cannot handle heat at all. And so it was so, so hot outside. It was 100 and something degrees in Michigan. That's, that's weird in Michigan. Anyway, uh, we're going back from the fireworks and the van that we had at the time, uh, we were having some uh, issues with it overheating. Uh, and so the solution that I, my mechanic told me to kind of prolong the life of the van was to run the heat. Uh, to vent the engine heat into the, into the car. And so, of course, on the way back from the 4th of July, uh, on the way back from the fireworks, we get stuck in this huge traffic jam uh, because there's this, there's this you know, bridge, and the bridge was up, and we had to wait and wait and wait. And, man, it was hot, and the car started to overheat, and we had to turn the heat on, and we were cranky. Um, I, was, I was cranky. Um, the, the van was full. We had eight people in that van. Don't worry, they had eight seatbelts, that van did. And we had eight people in that van, and we were all cranky. And then Sarah, to the rescue, uh, she starts telling this story. She's up in the passenger seat, and she starts telling this story. And to the, I wish I could remember it. It was the best story I've ever heard in my life. It was like... Americana on steroids, just pop culture references left and right. And it was so funny and it was so hilarious. Darth Vader made an appearance, I remember that much. And it was so, so funny. And we were dying, we were crying, we were laughing so hard. And it was even better when we realized that our windows were all down. And every car around us in this traffic jam had been trying to keep up with us. And we were actually starting to cause the traffic jam because everyone was listening to my wife tell this story. It was so good. It was so good. Um, another time, uh, we were in St. Louis for the fireworks. They had a, a, a great uh, fireworks show, and they had a bunch of free concerts, and it was a good time. And guess what? It was really hot, really hot in St. Louis. And we were walking, up to the, we were walking back to our hotel uh, in the afternoon. We were trying to grab a nap when it was at its hottest, and we are going to go back later for fireworks. And we were walking back up to the hotel, and we didn't think to bring anything to drink. Um, that was, you know, back in the day when people didn't uh, carry their metal water bottles to save the turtles. We just didn't have that with us. So we didn't have any water with us. And we were headed back. We were walking back and we were parched. We were so thirsty. And this time, salvation showed up in the form uh, of, of a truck. Uh, of this truck that was promoting this, uh, not new, but, but uh, this energy drink um, that, that we thought, hey, it's cold. It's liquid. It's got to be refreshing, right? And so the guy handed each of us a Red Bull, a big full-size Red Bull, can of Red Bull, including my son Seth, who at the time was like three or four years old, because we thought this would be a good idea, right? And so I, 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 the whole Red Bull in one pull, mine went down. I was so thirsty. And it's nasty, by the way. I don't like it. I mean, you might like it. I don't know. But I thought it was gross. But it was cold and it was liquid. Um, but, but Sarah and Seth, like, got a couple sips in and they just, they couldn't handle it. They didn't like how gross it was. Um, and so I'm like, well, I'm still thirsty. I'll, I'll drink yours. And so, uh, <laughs> so 
almost three full Red Bulls that afternoon in the course of about 10 minutes walking back to the hotel. And we got back to the hotel. Remember, it was, we were going to take naps, right? And so I laid down and it, took, uh, it only took maybe five or 10 minutes for my wife to just kick me out of bed because I was just bouncing and my leg was going. And, and she's like, you got to leave. I can't, I'm never going to be able to sleep. And so I ended up swimming laps in the hotel pool all afternoon until I crashed on like a lounge chair next to the pool and just fell asleep. And so that was, th- those are two of my, va- my very favorite 4th of July memories, my, f- my favorite celebrations, um, be- I, because it's always fun. Um, you know, I mean, I joke about the heat and everything, but it's always fun celebrating Independence Day right in the middle of summer, uh, a very American, summery thing to do. Um, but here's the thing. As we continue in, in the, this Philippians series, uh, we started last week in Philippians chapter one, um, and we're continuing this morning. And the thing is, we're gonna read a perspective from Paul that, challenges a lot of our independent way of thinking and living in in our country. Um, Almost everything that Paul says in this first chapter of Philippians challenges us, challenges our thinking, uh, and I just want you to be ready for that. I just want to throw that out there at the very beginning, that what Paul says is challenging. Um, I didn't pick this text for this day. Uh, This is just part of the series. So what Paul says is challenging, and here's the deal. It is totally cool to celebrate our country and celebrate our freedoms. Absolutely, 4th of July, let's celebrate. But our worship is reserved for the Lord. And it's important to keep those things separate. It's important to keep that separate. Celebrate your freedoms, worship your Lord. And so I just wanna put that out there before we dive in. So here we go, Philippians chapter one. We're gonna pick up in verse 12, where where Steve left off last week. Um, And we're we're gonna look at the whole rest of the chapter, starting in verse 12. It'll be on the screen behind me as well. Paul says, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. Remember, Paul's in prison as he's writing this letter. As a result, it's become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I'm in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. Now, it's true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. Because of this, I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage, so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain." If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet, what shall I choose? I do not know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it's more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain, and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. Whatever happens... Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. 
Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it's been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have." So last week, Steve took us through the circumstances Paul was in when he wrote this letter. He was in prison, he was waiting for his trial, and he didn't know what the outcome would be. He, did, he didn't know what the verdict was going to be, truly. And, and the people in Philippi, the, the people Paul wrote this letter to, they heard about his situation. And they loved Paul. Um, and so they sent a guy named Epaphroditus, we'll hear about him more in chapter 3, they sent this guy with some gifts uh, and some encouragement to Paul while he was in prison, and Paul sent back this letter. And I imagine that the Philippians expected this letter to be a report. They're very concerned about Paul, and so they want to know, how are you doing? Are they treating you fairly? Is everything okay? Um, and, and, you know, his health and his mental state and his trial date uh, and his defense and, and all the details of, of how everything was going. And, and they were, the people of Philippi were ready. They, they were ready to take up his cause. Uh, they were ready to, to raise money uh, for his defense. They were ready to, to, to get behind him uh, and raise awareness uh, around all the churches for his case. Uh, and, you know, they were ready to protest his mistreatment and demand his release. And here's the thing. Paul doesn't want anything to do with any of that. Paul doesn't lay out his case. Paul doesn't uh, start a GoFundMe and try to raise money from the Philippians. Paul doesn't want anything to do with any of that. Paul is concerned about something else. He doesn't spend any time complaining about how hungry he's been or how cold it gets at night or how lonely it is in his cell because the thing that's important to Paul, the thing that Paul wants them to know, the thing that he spends ink and space on in his letter is that what happened to him has actually advanced the gospel. That somehow Paul's negative circumstances, being in prison and waiting for trial, has resulted in glory coming to Jesus. And Paul's excited about that. And Paul wants the Philippians to know about it. He says that it's become obvious to the whole palace guard and to everyone who sees him that, that Paul is no ordinary prisoner. They can tell. They can tell that something's different about this guy. And they're curious. And I don't know. It doesn't, it doesn't tell us how Paul impacted them. It just says that they noticed and, and that the gospel is advancing. And so instead of trying to gain his own freedom, Paul spent his time sharing God's love and grace with the very people who were holding him in prison. And that's weird. It's really strange. And, and Paul gets weirder. Not only that, not only is he saying, oh, well, my circumstances, I'm in prison, big deal. The gospel's advancing. Then he says uh, his, his, his boldness in prison has inspired other believers to be courageous in their relationships with God and in the way they share the gospel. That people look at him and what he's going through, and they know that he's going through it for Jesus, and they're, they, they are more bold than they were before. They start sharing the gospel more than they did before. And so the gospel is advancing that way, that other believers are taking up the baton from Paul and they're going out and sharing about Jesus in ways that they weren't doing before uh, because they're so impressed with uh, Paul and his attitude in prison. And so Paul's perspective is that his time in prison, surprisingly, has led to the gospel's progress. When we would think the opposite, right? Great preacher like Paul, you throw him in prison, that'll end it. But that's not what happened. 
The gospel is sweeping through the ranks of the palace guard as they hear the way Paul speaks and they see the way he acts and they see the way he loves. And remember last week, Steve talked about how they were just singing uh, uh, hymns and praises while they're in prison, which is weird, but hey, it's Paul, right? He's inspiring others to follow his, his bold example of loving Jesus no matter what's going on in his life. Because he doesn't see pain. Paul doesn't see pain and suffering as good things. I think we get this. Sometimes we're like, oh man, so Paul is saying, you know, suffering's great. He's really not. I, I, I don't think it takes a lot of reading between the lines to assume that Paul didn't really want to be in prison. But that's just where he was. And so he's not like celebrating suffering. He's not telling us that we should seek suffering and pain, that, that somehow like pain is some good thing, that it's good for us. He's, he's not plastering like a fake smile on his face and pretending that he likes to be in prison. He's just being real about the thing that he cares about more than his own comfort. Because he, he really is just not focusing on himself at all. He, he chooses to focus on how God is working in the middle of his pain to bring something good out of something bad. And that's where Paul chooses to focus. And it seems like, if that's not bad enough, that Paul's in prison, if that's not bad enough, it seems like there are two groups that have kind of developed in the area. And two different groups have gotten more bold in their preaching. You know, Paul's kind of celebrating that there's this one group of Christians, this one group of believers that has gotten bold and they've started preaching Jesus more uh, with good motives, true motives. But then Paul mentions this other group, right? This other group that's hostile toward Paul. They're, they're motivated by envy and rivalry in their preaching. One group is driven by love and support, but the other group, Paul says, is driven by selfish ambition. They, 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 they want to make for a name for themselves as, as well as a name for Jesus, right? And it says that they were trying to, trying to make his suffering worse. Paul says they're try, you know, supposing that they could make it harder for me while I'm here in prison. And you can imagine, I mean... If you've ever read anything else in the New Testament that Paul wrote, you can imagine the Philippians are sitting here thinking like, oh, here it comes. Here it comes, right? Paul's going to blast these guys. Paul is going to open up and let them have it. And then Paul says something crazy in verse 18. He says, what does it matter? And man, I don't like that at all. I don't like it. I want Paul to go off. I want Paul to go off on, on these people who are trying to make his life harder. I, I don't like that at all. There's this whole group of people openly competing with him, trying to make his life harder while he's already in prison. And Paul's like, what does it matter? Both groups are preaching about Jesus. And since the gospel is about Jesus and it's not about Paul, Paul says, what does it matter? As long as Jesus is being lifted up, as long as Jesus is being glorified, what does it matter what they think of me? At the end of the day, after whoever these guys are, after all their efforts to make Paul's life harder, the only thing they succeeded in doing is what Paul desperately wanted to do more than anything, to preach Christ. And so Paul rejoices, because it's not about him, it's about Jesus. And it's important for us to understand that these guys aren't false teachers. They're not leading anyone astray. If that was happening, Paul's pretty clear in other places in the Bible that if that was happening, he's not gonna say, what does it matter? These aren't false teachers. Um, it, Paul wouldn't rejoice if they were. They have a motive that's less pure than others who are preaching. 
But in the end, their preaching focuses on Jesus. Their, pre- their preaching glorifies Jesus so Paul can rejoice. They, 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 maybe their, their heart isn't exactly in the right place all the time, but in the end, Jesus is being lifted up. So these aren't false teachers. So we just, we got to be clear about that, that Paul isn't just brushing false teaching aside and saying no big deal. That is a big deal. Um, but, but they're preaching about Jesus, lifting him high. The, their motive just isn't great. And that's all we know about them. We, we really don't know who they are. We can look through history. You know, commentators can speculate and guess. But in the end, nobody really knows who this group is um, in, in this instance that Paul's talking about. Um, and we don't know why they oppose Paul. It's possible that they just didn't like him. I mean, Paul's pretty bold. He's pretty blunt with the things that he says and the things that he does. And I don't know, maybe they thought they could make Paul jealous that, you know, you're in prison and we're out here preaching, doing what what you wish you were doing, you know, and look at us. And so maybe, I don't know, maybe they're trying to rub it in. I don't know. I'm totally speculating. But ultimately, the way they feel about Paul just doesn't matter to Paul. The important thing from his perspective is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And that gives Paul joy. And so I want to do just a couple quick things that, that I really love before we jump to the next crazy thing that Paul says. So the first thing is that it's, it's really a relief for me to know that Paul can celebrate when people preach the gospel without perfect motives. Because if I'm honest, I have to admit that my heart is not always in the right place. When I'm preaching, when I'm teaching, when I'm sharing about the Bible, sometimes I'm distracted. Sometimes I got other stuff going on. Sometimes I find myself thinking about me. And sometimes in my pride, I end up up elevating myself, and and that's not cool. And I got to repent of that, and I've got to ask God to forgive me. But what I love about this passage is that Paul's like, hey, you can still preach. You don't have to have perfect motives to share the gospel. It's good to know that my motives don't disqualify me from serving God, that God can and will use me even when I'm being an idiot. God can use idiots just like me, <laughs> right? Second, it's cool to see Paul living out his own advice. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul says uh, to the Corinthian believers, the very fact that you have lawsuits among you, he's talking about among the believers, the people in the church, the very fact that you have lawsuits among you means that you've been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers and sisters. And so according to Paul and Corinthians, it's more important for the church to be the church and support one another than for individual members to get their personal satisfaction by winning arguments against each other or taking each other to court in order to win settlements. Paul's saying, why not rather be wronged? Why not just let that stuff go for the sake of the gospel? And that's, I'm like, oh, like, all right, Paul, that's easy for you to say, but wait until someone does this to you. Well, check it out. In Philippians, someone's doing this to Paul, right? He personally faces people who have wronged him, people who have kicked him when he's down, when he's in prison, and his response is totally consistent with his advice in Corinthians, that God's agenda is bigger. It's more important than my need for personal justice, than my need to show everyone that I'm right. So when difficult circumstances, even life-threatening circumstances like Paul, when we run into that stuff, Paul's example is to look for how God might be working to advance the gospel in our lives and in the lives of other people. When fellow Christians oppose us instead of supporting us the way that they should, we need to remember Paul's perspective that what matters most isn't keeping my reputation and my image intact. What matters most is whether God is being glorified. 
That's what matters most. And so Paul's perspective on his negative circumstances is strange. Uh, his perspective on his opponents is even weirder. Uh, we look at that stuff and like, no, 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 you're supposed to try to get out of prison. You're supposed to try to improve your quality of life. You're supposed to, you know, when people oppose you, you're supposed to light them up on Facebook, Paul. You don't understand that? Um, that's our way. That's how we live. And Paul's like, no, it's not how I live. Um, and, and then he gets even weirder. I mean, if that stuff is weird, this, this is just downright crazy, right? Paul says, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now he's exaggerating, right? I mean, life and death cannot really be a win-win situation in Paul's mind. That is, if we're honest, almost offensive to our way of thinking. That life and death are, I mean, pretty much equal. In fact, that's not even what Paul says, right? Paul says that, that death would be way better and we're like, no, Paul, I must, have I must have misheard you. But we didn't. Paul says living means fruitful labor. Living means I, keep, I can keep doing ministry and serving God that way. But dying means I actually get to be with Jesus in his presence forever. And Paul says that, that he's torn between the two, right? That he, and he even goes so far to say that death is better by far. It's not even close. And somehow Paul genuinely sees living as the more difficult and sacrificial thing for him to do in this situation. That going on living requires more sacrifice from me than giving my life and going to be with Jesus. And I'll tell you what, we don't know what to do with that. You just look around at, at how people try to handle what Paul says here. Everybody is just psychoanalyzing this guy. Like, all right, well, he must, must have been suicidal, right? He must have had mental health issues. Must have been spiraling in a deep depression. Nobody says that. Nobody thinks that, right? Paul couldn't have been in his right mind. He must have been, and then we start to, oh yeah, remember when Paul said he had a thorn in the flesh? Oh, he must have been depressed. We don't know that. We don't know any of that. You can't, I had a professor in Bible college that used to get so mad so mad when we started doing stuff like this. And he used to say, you can't psychoanalyze a dead person. And he's right. We have no idea what Paul was thinking, what was, go what was going through his head other than what he wrote. We can't take him to the psychiatrist and get a diagnosis. We just don't know. But I don't think he's out of his mind. I think we've gotten kind of out of whack in our culture. I think it's us. Because we live in a culture that views death with such dread that, that our society's highest goal has become postponing death as long as possible. We spend billions and billions of dollars developing treatments and vaccines and equipment all designed to prolong life for as many years and months and minutes and seconds as we can. We hang on to this life so tightly. And when death finally comes, and I mean, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but it comes for everybody. When death finally comes, it's almost always seen as a failure of medicine. If only we could have done this better. If only we could have treated this sooner. Or it's seen as a tragic end. And that is just not the way Paul sees it. It's not the way Jesus sees it. We're so obsessed with not dying that we are constantly chasing things to improve our quality of life, even if it means ignoring and trampling other people in our path. 
Because my quality of life, me, for me to continue living is my highest importance in our culture. And it's not just difficult for us to understand in our culture where Paul is coming from. It is almost impossible for us to really take Paul at his words to say, for to me, to live is Christ, but to die is gain. And that dying would be far better, would be better by far. It's so hard for us to understand that. It's almost impossible. But, but let's give it a shot. From Paul's perspective, staying physically alive is not the most important thing we can do. Now again, just like earlier, Paul is not trying, he's not running out trying to get like hit by a chariot. Paul is, is he wants to live. Paul is interested in living and in doing ministry, but Paul is legitimately torn because he's also interested, perhaps more interested, in physically being with Jesus, being with his Savior and his Lord. So living means continuing to, to carry out his call to preach and do ministry, and dying means resting in the actual presence of Christ. And you can see Paul's perspective by the word that he uses for death, right? He says, I, des I desire to, I eagerly desire to depart, he says. And that word, that word depart is a word that's usually used of a ship raising its anchor to continue its journey to the next spot, to its next location. I eagerly desire to pull up my anchor and go to the next thing. That doesn't sound like this terrible, tragic ending that we make it out to be, right? In other places in the Bible, Paul talks about death as falling asleep. That's a metaphor he uses quite a bit. Um, again, for Paul, death isn't this, this final and, and terrible, horrible thing that we tend to think of it as. It's just part of our journey toward eternal life. So instead of dwelling on his quality of life in prison or whether he lives or dies as a result of his trial, Paul simply hopes for the outcome that will most clearly advance the gospel. Whatever will most glorify Jesus is the thing Paul desperately wants to happen. And as uncomfortable as it is, we need, we need to ask ourselves that tough question. Why are we so obsessed with staying alive for as long as possible? Not that we should have a death wish, but why are we so obsessed with prolonging our life for as long as possible? Because here's the thing. The purpose of your life should be bigger than just staying alive. The purpose of your life should be bigger than just staying alive. We were made for bigger things than just living out our minutes until we have none. The purpose of your life should be bigger. And Paul has a unique perspective on suffering and relationships and death because Paul has a unique purpose for his life. His purpose is bigger than his own comfort. It's bigger than his reputation. It's bigger even than, just, even than staying alive. It's even bigger than his life. Paul's purpose, his mission, his life goal, his guiding principle is the gospel. The good news of who Jesus is, what Jesus has done and continues to do, and how it changes everything for the better. And in verse 27, Paul challenges everyone reading this letter to make the gospel our purpose in life too. He says, whatever happens, you're in prison, people are talking bad about you, your life is being threatened, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And I'll tell you what, Steve told me I was going to preach on the 4th of July, I'm like, cool, not bringing politics into it at all, not the time. And then Paul's like, I'm going to use this word, and it's really weird, and you're going to have to talk about politics. So here we go. There's this really interesting metaphor that Paul uses in this verse. And our English translations kind of miss it. 
because they're trying to make the sentence sound normal to our ears. They're trying to make it make sense in English, and I don't fault them for that. Um, so the word for whatever happens means what you think it means. It means whatever, right? In any and every circumstance, without exceptions, the gospel should be our purpose, whatever happens. But the, the word that is translated as conduct yourselves in the NIV is rare. Uh, it's only used one other time in the whole Bible. Uh, it's in Acts 23, verse 1, if you're curious. We're not going to spend any time on that, but if you want to look it up later and compare, uh, 20, Acts 23, 1. Uh, but when it's used in other ancient Greek writings, uh, because we do have this word in other ancient Greek writings, it's a political word. Uh, in fact, the, the Greek word is polytueste. And I put it on the screen so you can see it. When you hear it, you don't see it as well, but you can see that it shares a root for words that are political. It starts with the idea of politics. It refers to fulfilling your civic duty to your city or your country. So in Greek, this verse literally reads, only worthily of the gospel of Christ live as good citizens. So you can see why the English translations change that, <laughs> right? That doesn't ring true in our ear, but, but it loses some of, the, some of what Paul is getting at here, right? That as citizens of the kingdom of God, we should govern our lives based on the gospel rather than society's requirements for being a good citizen of whatever city or state or country you live in. The gospel is ahead. We're, we're citizens of the kingdom of God before we're citizens of any kingdom of earth, and you got to understand, Philippi was a, a Roman military colony. Uh, the people who lived there were granted Roman citizenship, and, and they were proud of that. That was a big deal. They were proud of their city. They were proud of Rome. They, they embraced a Roman worldview and a Roman lifestyle. They were Roman in the way they thought and Roman in the way they acted, and every aspect of their lives was shaped by Roman culture. And Paul, knowing this about them, urges them to live a different citizenship one that's shaped by the gospel and not by their culture and not by the society that's around them. Whatever happens, in any and every circumstance, our duty is to the gospel above all else. So difficult circumstances or problems caused by other people that make our lives harder, those things never give us the right to act outside of God's will. When, when our circumstances get difficult, when people oppose us, none of those things give me the right to act in a way that is not consistent with the gospel. Paul says, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel, whatever happens. And Paul didn't always have that perspective. He didn't always have that purpose in his life. There was a time in his life when he didn't live for Jesus. Before Jesus showed up on the road to Damascus, Paul lived for himself. I mean, he... I, I'm sure he thought he was living for his religion. He was living for his national pride as a, as a Jew. He lived for his image and for his reputation. He lived for his cause. Uh, he was a big, big advocate for his cause. He lived against Christ and without Christ. He lived independent of Jesus. And back then, if he was honest, he would have to say, for me, to live is Paul. And, and if that has me wondering this week if I'm any different. If I'm any different from the way Paul used to be, am I more like Saul, you know, before God intervened in his life, or am I more like Paul? How would I finish that sentence, for me to live is what? I mean, how would you finish it? For me to live is family, to live is work, to live is making the team, or being accepted by my friends, to live is popularity or getting famous, 
To live is making money and buying stuff. To live is being right, doing right, advocating my cause. If your purpose for living is anything other than Jesus and the gospel, then you can't honestly say with Paul that to die is gain. If for me to live is family and I die, that's not gain. I've lost family, my family's lost me. That's loss. For me to live is work, but I die, that's not gain. I've lost work and my purpose, my work has lost me, they gotta find somebody else, that's loss. The only way we can honestly say with Paul, to die is gain, is if to live is Christ. And that is our purpose. That's why death is the worst possible thing that can happen in our culture, because we're all living for the wrong things. And so dying means we lose it all. The only way dying is gain is to live exclusively for the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's the only way. When we live for something bigger than ourselves, we can rise above our circumstances. Jobs and families, possessions, hobbies, none of those things are big enough or permanent enough to overcome the obstacles you'll face in life. None of them are big enough to be our purpose. We need something bigger to sustain us and give us joy even when things are hard. Paul was imprisoned, betrayed by his friends, facing a trial that might result legitimately in his own death, and he was filled with joy. How? Because he didn't view what was happening in his life in terms of how it affected his comfort or his plans or even his ability to stay alive. He measured everything by how it accomplished his life's mission. His joy was connected to the gospel. And as long as the gospel was changing people's lives, Paul's physical condition didn't matter to him. Because the gospel is bigger than Paul. It's bigger than me, it's bigger than you, and you never know how God might use your circumstances for a bigger purpose than you could ever have imagined. But whatever happens, whether you see it or not, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Let me pray. Father, man, I acknowledge that, that for me, this is hard. I, I, I don't love the idea of leaning in to, to, to death being gain. That's a scary thing. And so, Father, I just pray for all of us today that Paul's words will just work on us. That, that, that we'll ask ourselves those questions. What are we living for? What, what would death mean in my life? Could I honestly say with Paul that to die is gain because I'm so sold out and bought into you? Father, I just pray that you would shape and change our perspective and that you would instill in us a purpose that is big enough to sustain us through any hard and difficult circumstance we might face, a purpose that's big enough for us to have joy no matter what happens to us, no matter what people say about us, that our joy can be complete because it's completely in you. So Father, I wanna thank you for a text like this that's challenging, and I just wanna pray that you'd open our hearts to hear it uh, and, and have it work on our lives. It's in Jesus' name, amen. So we, uh, at the end of our service every week, we take communion.
together and it it helps us remember what we're called to live for. Uh, Jesus didn't want to suffer any more than Paul wanted to suffer. Uh, The night before his crucifixion, he prayed in the garden that God would find another way to accomplish his purpose in the world. But above all, he prayed that God's will would be done, that God's mission would be accomplished. When Jesus died, we gained everything. Forgiveness for our sin, access to the Father, eternal life in God's presence. And that's why Paul can say to live is Christ, but to die is gain. Only through Jesus is that true. Jesus changes our perspective because he gives us the only purpose that's worth living and dying for. And that's what we remember when we take communion. So the the communion is under your chair. We're going to take it together. His body given for us. And his blood poured out for our sins. Amen. Well, I was asked to make sure you knew that there are trash cans near the offering plates by all the doors. Uh, and so it would be really helpful if you would throw these out on your way, uh, on your way out. Also, don't forget to uh, grab your bomb pop as you leave uh, after we sing one last song this morning. Let's have fun celebrating the 4th of July and worshiping our God. <laughs>